Hello and welcome to World and Union, the Bazaari Rugby Podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast. My name is Morris Brosnan and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by PJ Brown once again. PJ, how's it going? Uh, very good, Morris. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here in uh, Mick's absence. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure where Mick is. He could be on like international podcast duty or maybe the way because it's his anniversary. I, I, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, I, I'm starting to feel like I'm the kind of the Noel going to be the Noel Reed, <laughs> going to be the Noel Reed of this podcast. You know, by the end of my podcast career, I'm going to have racked up like 250 podcast appearances, kind of quietly, and no one's going to really. Was he? Was he was on that? God. Yeah, but actually, to be fair, I would say not to knock Noel Reed. He played pretty well. Yeah, he did a starting on. job when when called upon. Yeah, um, that's fair enough. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Jake Keenan, former Connacht player who is now over in Bristol with Pat Lamb and John Muldoon. But there's only one place to start, really, and that's the weekend of rugby, which was phenomenal. I think all eyes were probably focused on Leinster and Ulster, which was maybe the standout tie until Sunday. Mm. All eyes, including um, to the extent where I was actually working at the boxing in the National Stadium in Dublin on Saturday night. And there was a guy over in the corner with his hood up and he had his headphones on. And I was kind of looking, like, what's going on here? He was in the dressing room, presumably preparing to fight. Anyway, it turns out it was Killian Reardon who is the Leinster strength and conditioning coach right. and also a professional boxer. And despite the fact that he's um, a couple of minutes out from a pro fight, pro TV fight, he was focused on the Leinster game and listening to that, which uh, I thought was really nice. I asked him about it afterwards and he said, you know, he carries a job everywhere with him and it's just what he wants to do. The game itself was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a really great game. Also true, absolutely everything at Leinster, like right from the off, from like from that kind of, the knock, the lockdown of uh, Gary Ringrose's blocking on Gary and Rose's kick and then Kieran Treadwell going over for the try it was Ulster deserved to win that game I think overall yeah I, would, I wouldn't I would necessarily I loved one thing I loved about that try I think something that was really unappreciated is Billy Burns shooting up out of the line and just changing the picture because I watched the back this morning and even if you see Ross Byrne turns his head twice to look towards Ring Rose and it's kind of a signal that you're going to exit here you're going to kick you know the second receiver something mm. else to do a lot actually and Burns clearly recognised that and kind of in-game intelligence realised that if he shot out of the line, he would force him to, he just changed the picture, you know, just made it look slightly different. And it was something that, it's actually an aspect of us that I really, really like. I mean, Darren Cave is probably the standout example, this shooting up out of the 13 channel and forcing them back inside, something he did over and over again. He made really good reads. And it reminded me of something actually, it was Ian Costello, the WASP defence coach, we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago on this podcast and he spoke to us about this obsession with missed tackles, you know. So I looked it up this morning and Darren Cave is down for one missed tackle. And if when you watch it back, the missed tackle they're talking about is the one when he forces, I think it's Larimore, he jumps up out of his line, it's in just after the hour mark, and forces him back in field. So he misses the tackle, yeah. But if the ball had gone wide... It was Cronin and Adam Byrne against Stockdale, a 2v1 overlap. Mm. So it was an effective missed tackle. And it's something I think, I wonder to what extent Jared Payne, who obviously has a lot of experience playing centre, has an input into that. He clearly does because he's their fence coach. But it's just, like the evolution in Ulster is so incredible, isn't it? They, they've moved so quickly this season from being like nearly a basket case last year to, if Dan McFarland has really kind of turned it around there, to yeah. be so competitive against the European champions in a like a in a big quarter final, it, it was a like a really great performance from Ulster that you can take a lot of heart from. I think. Yeah. Now the match was Jack Conan, um, Jack Conan, who Jamie Heaslip reckons is now the informed number eight in Ireland. Mm. I'm not so sure about that, but given Dan Levy's injury, I think he's probably a World Cup certainty or certainly close to it now. I think he has to be. Yeah, kind of versatility as well to play six and eight. The yeah. b- the most balanced Ireland looked this year as well is when he came on. 
at number eight and mm. CJ Sander went across the seven and it was finally looked like their back row had a bit of fluidity something that's really kind of lacking right now I don't know is he I don't know if he's necessarily ahead of CJ Sander I mean I, th- I still think that Sander is his game is slightly evolved beyond that you seem to disagree do you I probably do I mean like we, we always heard for so long about like CJ Sander needs to evolve his game and yeah. add in kind of offloads to it because so there is an argument being made that he does take a lot of people to bring him down. He occupies a lot of defenders, but it still it feels like he, if he added something else, he probably would gain more meters on the pitch. I mean, on, on Saturday, I was looking at the stats. Jack Conan gained 67 meters. He was the third most of any player in that game. That the break for the for the Adam Byrne try was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, was like while while trying to pull up his shorts <laughs> at the same time, uh, scrambling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the thing with Sander is that he's kind of been used as like your prop battering ram, like your first up carrier, and it's his job to kind of punch holes there. And so he's the yard gains off that is going to always be kind of minimal. And I think that's down to we might talk about Munster in a couple of minutes, but just a lack of an attacking game plan. Like one thing I really liked about Ulster was this thing of using like a big one and a little one in terms of you know Burns takes the ball but Treadwell carries it just coming off the shoulder and they use that a lot just kind of changing the point of impact again this is all just really slight changes an organizational structure that was totally lacking last year and also they have they clearly have the skill set to kind of carry that out now mm. You'd, like I'd be very optimistic as an Ulster fan coming away from the weekend's game yeah definitely it's great to see like someone like uh, Luke Marshall coming back yeah it's a great after point be- being off since I think May he played last game was a playoff game against Ospreys and with nearly his first touch of the ball he goes over for a try kind of, kind of look it was like they call it a fairy tale moment on commentary and it was like he had Mike Lowry outside him and <laughs> he's lucky he went over I don't think it would have been a fairy tale moment it would be more of a nightmare moment really yeah um, Leinster play Toulouse who were also pretty impressive at the weekend as well but before we talk about that Munster was the early game on Saturday. Kind of, a, it was a really awkward time to watch the game. It was, yeah. I felt like there was no real. I think the atmosphere itself was great because of Munster fans, but in, in terms of even just as a spectator, there was no real build up and stuff. I wonder how that implemented players in terms of trying to gear yourself up. Like this is stuff that they're surely used to. Um, but Munster's attack just never really got going. No, they, they did a lot of early disruptions as well. I thought there was like obviously Mike Haley going out before yeah, the kickoff and then they had to kind of rejig it at the back then they had like John Klein went off for the HIA um, I think Jack O'Donoghue kind of went off after about half an hour and Joey Carby then goes off five minutes later so they like they, they did well to kind of weather those early disruptions and they probably that like they definitely didn't help with it yeah I mean I, I agree with you I also think there was a, maybe a slight lack of accuracy that just like the Lancer and team, for example, even just watching it back this morning, the amount of box kicks that were just perfect. I mean, really, really contestable. There was, I think there was only one that was ever overcooked in that entire game. Um, whereas you look at the Munster game and both teams, I think, were kind of really, really committed in defence and really organised in defence, but just lacking something kind of going forward. I think that has been, a, it's been a team. It's something I bring up a lot in this podcast, is a team about Munster's kind of lack of, you know, I think it's a lack of versatility in attack. So it's mm. something as simple as like a strike. You know, you see Leinster trying to run strike plays. There was one where they had um, Dave Carney running a blindside run in behind Ringrose. So it was like Ringrose is the decoy. And it actually, as it turns out, if it was a flat pass to Ringrose, he would have broken through. They just made the read as also did kind of all game. But I think Munster kind of lacked that. And I wonder, I know obviously Carberry coming off is a 
you know, there's a huge amount of disruption as they've had all season, but I still think it's something that um, will be a failing come a European semi-final. I think Edinburgh had 31 defenders beaten, Munster at 17. That's an amazing stat, well. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's, I mean, it's nearly double there, pretty much. Yeah. Um, Munster did win, thanks, by and large, to the Moiros master, which is Keith Dirles. Mm. His finishing ability, especially when you compare it to what happened to Stockdale, um, is just phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like, he, he knows you have to go down early. He's, he's going down like a couple of metres before he crosses the line. Uh, he, he, he knew, like, he thought he was going for the corner. He was going for, like, on that second try. Yeah. And actually, the first one, it was incredible quick thinking. Yeah, what, probably the most aware man on the pitch there, yeah. Yeah, def- I mean, he he thought it, uh, Edinburgh a little bit asleep there. And and Conor Murray opened up a little bit of a gap for him by suplexing uh, Henry Pergoth. Yeah. Most of were quite lucky there. I agree. I mean, like, it, it could easily have been overturned, like Conor Murray overturned uh, Pergoth. I think there was um, <laughs> there was a degree of kind of inconsistency in the refereeing of that game, which both helped and hindered Munster. Like I think Ty Brown might have been lucky as well. I wonder to mm. what extent did he exaggerate? Would be a generous word. Contact there. Ty Brown is a big man, and I, Showman's Showman's a, a fairly bulky man as well. But I don't think. I mean, it was it looked exaggerated. He definitely kind of he milked it. He I don't think Ty, Ty Byrne really bounces that way off somebody. Yeah, yeah. I think somebody else bounces off Ty Byrne, and he stayed down for quite a while afterwards. And that was a, that was a huge moment in the game. I mean, that's oh, it, it, it changed the game. Yeah, it's ten minutes from the end. Um, Monster didn't look like they were going to create anything until they got that penalty overturned and they end up with uh, that line out and. Then Keith Earl scores off the back of it. Yeah, I mean, my, my, like my own thinking on that, by the way, is that if you want to avoid a player, like I don't think it's diving because there's enough in it for it to be a penalty, like it's an infraction. And then, I mean, it happened a couple of seconds earlier where the 10 also kind of took a tumble, would be a generous enough phrase. But I, I think it's um, like if Byrne doesn't go down, it's not a penalty. Mm. So it's it kind of like, does it propose, I suppose, a a question for players as to whether or not you this is like rugby this is mean this has debate that happens in football a lot and i hate it like contact is obviously allowed but i'm just wondering to in his own head to what extent was he thinking i won't get a penalty if i stay on my feet i also think he gets clipped from behind by jeremy lockman which is what actually there's this a cut from behind the goal where his own player kind of nudges him back mm. which i think what actually okay. emphasized the fall so i don't like i wouldn't have put it down as a dive okay but i think I think exaggerated is probably fair. Yeah, I think definitely, definitely. I mean, if if he hadn't stayed down that long, I wonder if like a penalty would have been given. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if it would. I mean, yeah, I agree. Um, both teams probably didn't demonstrate a huge amount that would have Saracens or Toulouse quaking in their boots. Would that be fair to say? No, that definitely not. Uh, Saracens were awesome. Yeah, I mean, they were absolutely awesome. I mean, without without Owen Farrell and. To, to lose them like so close to the game and you've Alex Good step into 10 and well, they, they knocked up 56 points on a really like a good Saracens team actually the uh, Owen Farrell's kind of dedication to wanting to yeah. play that game was, was something incredible it was actually there's good quotes from uh, Mark McCall on the B- on uh, BBC he says uh, that Owen Farrell phoned me at 2.30 this is 2.30 in the afternoon and, and said in the next half hour in the next half hour, I might be ready. I said, Owen, the game starts at 3.15. I don't... 
I don't know if she's actually had the baby yet. We, ha- we had a rough cut-off point. His wife went into labour last night. At 8.30am, he was pretty confident it would all happen, but it didn't. But the important thing is, but the important thing was that, that he was where he should have been, with his wife. <laughs> and that's a pretty, like, little bit of a relationship. Marriage, marriage counselling, yeah. Marriage <laughs> advice there from Mark McCall at the end, telling you, Owen, Owen, take, take it from me. You sh- yeah, you, you should have been there. Don't worry about the rubby. In the final game, um, Toulouse were unbelievably impressive. Um, probably the most controversial point sticking point in this to go back to refereeing decision was Zach Holmes' red card. Mm. Um, I thought it was more than fair decision. Yeah, no, I, I my reaction, like initial reaction, was he, he's definitely in trouble there. I, I I couldn't quite believe that, um, like that on commentary by O'Driscoll and Lawrence, I think it was Lawrence Lally were kind of saying, a oh yeah, pro- probably yeah. probably a yellow. It's like yeah. nothing more. Um, but the more it went on and the more they thought they kind of started to move towards it being a red card as well and that they were kind of okay with it. It was, it was um, I thought Luke Pierce, the referee, dealt with it really well. He was like, the way he explained it and it just, it made it, made it really clear as to what he was looking for and why he was being, why, uh, why Holmes was being sent off. And you still get this, it's something that just drives me like fucking crazy is the reaction from people where it's, the game's gone soft for yeah. after a weekend an unbelievably entertaining weekend but one of the best rugby weekends we've had in ages you we were absolutely spoiled this weekend but in that you saw what happened to Philney Bealham on Friday night who had a horrific looking hand injury and was you know getting sick as he's carted off the pitch uh, Tommy O'Donnell missed most of the game entirely because he's so injury played Jack O'Donnell came off because of a head injury he had Josh Van Fleer missed the game entirely because he's so injury blighted and Dan Levy had another horrible injury. He saw Rory Best on the sideline in a boot. To see this, the game's gone soft comments. Mm. That was a lot more widespread than you would hope w- would ever be online. It's just such a sh- sh- moronic way of looking at a game that has never been as entertaining and never been as physical and the inability to kind of pair the two and understand that you might have to take some sacrifices in one for the sake of welfare, which I mean is always mm. at the top of an hierarchy. Just It drives me absolutely insane. Borobi are doing this for they're they're being kind of really preemptive here in changing these tackle laws because they kind of realize that like what's happened in American football where there people do wonder is this game going to be here like are we be able to going to going to be able to play this game in a few years like because there are so many uh, players suffering from concussion I think they're kind of realizing we we need to start changing our game now and or else it might not exist at all like yeah yeah exactly and I suppose I mean just to go back to that team a lot of these we keep talking about this a topic we bring up on the show a lot but it's the ability to be proactive with certain law decisions so Ben Cisneros proposed on this show that this judo wrestle that is at a rook shouldn't be legal and because it'll lead to injuries injuries exactly like what we saw happen to Dan Levy at the weekend and these are existing laws that probably aren't being applied which is just frustrating that they've been reactive to the tackle and it looks like eventually they're going to be reactive to rooking laws when there is maybe a bit more scope to actually, you know, take onus of that and implement rules that already exist. I mean, you doesn't take a large kind of mass overhaul to, to do this. Yeah, I, d- I think like it's surprising how I, I thought that people had just come around now and they, they accepted that you can't do this anymore. But it is like, I mean, like maybe you shouldn't be judging off a couple of lads on Twitter. Exactly. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Maybe we're, yeah. we're kind of reacting like a little bit, kind of putting a bit too mo- much weight on that. Yeah. But like even like, I know they kind of came around to it in the end, but O'Driscoll and Lally are kind of saying, oh, I know it's a yellow, like, you know, well, it's not anymore. I mean, it's like, he, he hit him in the neck, like, 
yeah, he, yeah. And he hit him, he hit him very high, and it was, it was kind of, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous tackle. And I just finally on that, I think the reaction from Toulouse players after was great. Kind of all of them openly saying that it was a red card and just mm. parking it and move on, which is exactly what we want to see. Um, we'll hear from Jake next, who's over in Bristol, who won't be playing Connacht because Connacht lost on Friday night away to Sale. Uh, pretty disappointing performance. I think it could have been a much different game if Jack Carty had scored that early intercept. Mm. Do you know, actually, on that, in a situation like that, when you're this you know 70-yard break and you're breaking up field and you're being chased down, I think your best bet is to kick it ahead. I think trying to offload it, the, the read or the level that it takes to do that is just too difficult. Like I think it's like a, what would you call it, a little dink ahead and yep. hope that whoever's coming behind you can get onto the ball. I think it gives you the best chance of, of scoring in a situation like that. Mm. Connacht way too many errors in that game it was yeah. 20 errors to fail 10 that's that's just we're not going to win a game like that yeah and the, the biggest fear I suppose is that now that you know you're putting all your eggs in your basket in terms of the Pro 14 and yet you're mm. two standout players recently in Finney Beelham and Jack Carthy both come off injured um, so that would be a cause for concern yeah definitely one ex-Connacht man is Jack Jay Keenan who we can hear from next alright I'm delighted to say we're joined now by Bristol flanker Jay Keenan Jake how's it going? Yeah, good thanks, mate. How are you? Great, yeah. Uh, it's been a crazy enough year in the Gallagher Premiership and for Bristol as a whole. Obviously, Europe didn't work out last weekend, but sitting kind of a lot prettier now in ninth in the Premiership. How have you found it so far? Yeah, she's a, um, a pretty full-on competition, eh? It's, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously with the, the whole relegation battle, um, you know, there's a lot less room for error. Uh, you know, sort of everyone's coming for you every weekend. There's, there's no such thing as a an off day, you know. So, um, mate, it's been really good. It's been a, it's been an experience. It's been a, a lot of hard work, eh? The the idea of relegation we might as well start there because it's something that obviously you wouldn't have experienced with Connacht. Um, would you be in favour of this proposed ring fencing that there's been so much talk about this year? <laughs> mate, it's it's a re- it's a really tough one for me. I look, it's I think at base value I would be. Um, okay. Just, just have, having played in, in the Pro 12 and you know later the Pro 14, um, and seeing the opportunities that the players get, um, uh, you know the the rotation of squads is a lot more than, um, than than over here. I think, and I think that's part of it is that you know teams can afford to have an off day in, in the Pro 12, whereas they can't over here. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that was that was really good and it was really healthy, you know, especially with Irish rugby. You saw the amount of young guys coming through and playing, uh, getting regular first, uh, you know, first team minutes. Uh, the flip side is, is you've got a lot of history with a lot of, um, you know, really, uh, really good, um, you know, talented old, uh, you know, old clubs, um, you know, which are wanting to uh, to obviously get back to that level or, or to, to reach and aspire for more. So it's very hard to then turn around and tell them, well, look, this is as far as you can go, you know. Yeah, for those who don't remember, um, Jake, you obviously spent five years with Connacht and then were with the New Zealand under-20s as well. The the opportunity to even play in a system like this, was that something that you maybe would have earmarked earlier in your career? Um, well, mate, to, to be honest, I didn't really, you know, like the whole Connacht thing come up by chance almost and um, was never never something I considered and, until it was put in front of me. So, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of my rugby in the Northern Hemisphere has been fairly uh, opportunistic, you know. So, um, so yeah, look, I, I was, you know, I think before I came to Connacht, actually, because I'm, I'm English qualified, so I was approached by a couple of English clubs, and that's how I ended up in Galway. But 
uh, most definitely something you know I've considered. And obviously, the opportunity to work with Pat Lamb as well was a fairly enticing one. Yeah, well, like I, I knew, I obviously knew a bit of him before I came to to Connacht, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, and and he at the time he was the coach who was willing to to you know to put his name behind me kind of thing and and back me, which was pretty important. Um, and and you know, look, he's he's uh, he works tremendously hard and and he cares a lot about playing a really good, uh, really healthy game and. Uh, made a lot of things that are really attractive as a player, so uh, I've been very lucky to, to work with him for as many years as I have. So that um, that style thing, that's kind of a, a positive for a player. Like that's something that might be uh, enticing, is it? Yeah, mate, uh, huge. Look, well, especially obviously, you know, coming to the northern hemisphere, and um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure about what the rugby was like in the northern hemisphere, so um, to get up and, and move to the other side of the world and, and potentially have to maul and chase kicks for three years would have been a pretty daunting ask. So, <laughs> mate, at least, you know, know you can come up here and, and get my hands on the ball and play a bit of rugby, which is, you know, which has been great fun. And then, just to go back to, to, to Connacht, I mean, that was probably a really positive experience. You kind of became a, a fan favourite quite quickly there. Is In hindsight, there's nothing but good memories there, is it? Yeah, look, I, you know, obviously I had my, my tough years as well, but, yeah. um, you know, I, I sort of, I always had it in mind that, I just needed a crack and if someone would give me an opportunity then you know to, to play full-time rugby when I was a young fellow and I could make things happen and, and fortunately that came and um, I was able to play some good rugby but you know with that I think you know I had my back I had I, mean, I had six surgeries in my five years there you know so um, there are a couple of couple of pretty tough years I did one uh, 11 months stint without playing a game so um but mate, look, I, I love Galway. Galway's a second home to me now. Um, you know, I'm very proud to have to have played there and to have achieved uh, what I've achieved there. So, mate, yeah, look, on the whole, uh, delighted with 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 what I've done there. The to go back to the the team of injuries, I think it's something that a lot of people, certainly at home now, are, are really focused on. With uh, the news that Dan Levy's going to miss the World Cup, and there's been a lot of attritional kind of. Especially on open sides, you find that the back row is probably the most injury-prone position. Like the World Rugby have tried to move towards maybe dressing that up, and there's even been talk of outlawing um, the jackal. Would those be moves that would necessarily impregnate your consciousness, or would you be more focused on just taking care of your own sake? Yeah, look, I've I've sort of I've learned to adapt the the style of game I play and uh, the technique around a few things I do in terms of. Um, of injury, um, you know, I think, I think what's well, I, I suppose the collision aspect of it, you can't. A lot of things you can't really prepare yourself for. It's, yeah, you know, those things will happen. And um, but you know, if a team's uh, run very professionally and you've got a really good S and C program, um, which is complemented by a good medical staff, you know, you, you can reduce that risk a lot. And um, look, I think other than that, I'd. Mate, I think we'd get pretty depressed if we sat around thinking about injuries too much. So uh, you kind of just get on with it, you know. So that's interesting. You've adapted your game maybe in terms of technique and stuff to make it safer, is it? Yeah, so when I, when I first got to Connick, um, I used to reach a lot for jackals. Okay. And, mate, I, I, was, I was really good at it. And I, mate, I got a load of steals when I first got there and, and probably was part to to why I was, I was playing as well as I was. But the problem with reaching is, is you put your shoulders in, in quite awkward positions, you know. You, yeah. you put them in quite compromised positions. Um, and, 
yeah, three three of my, my four shoulder injuries came from being outstretched and someone comes down on your shoulder and in a weak position and, and it just comes out, you know. So um, so now I sort of, I like to keep my thumbs up. I like to keep my arms quite tight and try and jackal a lot more with my forearms and just keep my shoulders in a stronger position. So you, you've adapted that to maybe, you know, you're not as, as stretched over the ball. Like that's one of the things that we see a lot is kind of the... The worst case example is the the Paul O'Connell scenario where you know their hamstring is stretched out and it's kind of it's one or two cleanouts and it to blow them out of there. You've adapted that to make it you more secure, but also not as exposed. Yeah, well, it's look, it's primarily to keep my shoulders in a in a strong and safe position. But as well as that, of you know, I try um, to adopt. Uh, you know, if the jackal's on, it's on. If it might be on. It's probably not on. Leave it alone. Go for the next one. Kind of an attitude as well, and and that way you're giving yourself every chance. Um, you know, you're giving yourself. You, you're attacking the rucks, which have a bit more daylight. You're attacking rucks, which are, you know not as busy, and and you, you're more likely to get in a strong position before you take the contact. Um, so you know, look, mate, and, and that doesn't work for for everyone. You look at a guy like George Smith, who, who can jackal just about anything, just about anywhere, yeah. and. You know, and still does it really, really well. So, um, for me, I've found, and, and the, the way the game's gone a little bit too, you know, we've found over here jackals are, are coming less and less. Refs are more likely to give the attacking team more time, you know, to try and uh, to try and clean out the jacklers. So, um, you know, that's, I've just found that sort of helped me in the last few years at least since, uh, since I've had trouble with my shoulders. You obviously have... Um a former TV over there with you in Bristol as well, in John Muldoon. How has that been? Yeah, mate, it's been really cool. Uh, it's quite a natural role for him, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's kind of... Yeah, look, It's almost not an overly dissimilar role from Connacht in the sense that, you know, he was always kind of, kind of in a mentor, sort of a, a helping role, even while he was playing. So... Um, mate, it's been really good. It, it keeps the place. Uh, lots of friendly faces around. Obviously, Conor McPhillips as well. So, is uh, mate, we're never short of a laugh here, anyway. And so that's interesting. You always knew he'd have that um, kind of coaching brain, is it? Yeah, yeah, I definitely. He was, um, you know, he's always always been, um, you know, right on top of of game plan and and the why we do things and how we do them. Um, and you know, I think that's that's why he was able to play at such a high level so well for so long. You know, Bristol is an interesting club because obviously you know promotion last year, and there was a lot of talk that maybe they would be involved in a relegation dogfight, and have kind of exceeded a lot of expectations this year. In terms of that kind of culture and the impact somebody like Pat has and stuff like that, are your ambitions to go further? Yeah, mate. We look. We we've never never talked about or worried about relegation this year. Mm-hmm. That, that hasn't been a focus for us. Um, and, you know, another reason why, why I've enjoyed being at the club, why I've enjoyed working with Pat is, you know, we, we've never looked down. We're always looking up. We're always, you know, and, and we have never been too far off that sort of top six, top four. Um, you know, there's only a handful of results, very close results that, that might have gone the other way. And, and we'd be talking about, you know, we'll, competing for finals rugby instead of uh, you know instead of talking about relegation so that's what's been really good we, we, we don't play with fear of relegation we don't play to pick up losing bonus points you know we go out to play really quality rugby and, and to win games every week and so I think that kind of keeps us uh, keeps it fairly positive as well 
Uh, you said at the start that you know Bristol might not necessarily have been on your radar when even when Connacht wasn't uh, it's a Northern Hemisphere idea. Was it always your ambition to be a professional rugby player? Yeah, yeah, I I, I got hold of that pretty early. Um, you know, I got, well, I played in school and I, I had a couple of lucky breaks when I was a young fellow. I didn't actually really know, you know, what professional rugby was all about. Or I had uh, Northern. Northern was my local team and, and that was about as high as, as I kind of knew existed. So, um, yeah, look, I, I got onto it pretty early and a few lucky breaks and met a few of the right people who, who kind of pushed me on. And, um, yeah, look, I've, I've been fortunate enough to kind of follow my nose and it, it's done me pretty well so far. Yeah, yeah. So, like, like looking forward, you you mentioned John Muldoon's um, ability for camping. I know you you yourself were uh, were kind of held in high regard in terms of your kind of rugby IQ. Is coaching something that would be on your own radar? I don't think so. Um, to be honest with you, um, mate, all, all the best coaches I've worked with are, are complete workaholics. They 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 work extremely hard, and that's you know, and, and there's no exceptions to that. And I, I don't think you can achieve all stay at a high level um, for very long without working very hard. And then even the coaches who do work really hard, if it doesn't click, they get run out of places pretty quickly. So, no, mate, I think I'll be parking up by a beach somewhere and, and taking it pretty easy when I'm finished playing. It's probably enough stress for one lifetime for me, I think. So, um, mate, I, but in saying that, look, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I do like, I enjoy coaching. Um, you know, I like working, especially with the younger people and, uh, in that aspect of it, but mate, I, I don't think I'd have the, um, you know, the, the coaching worth ethic that's required to to make it, you know, world class. Yeah, th- I was going to ask you about that because it's one of the things that I think, um, b- b- you're certainly held in higher regard in Galway, especially with your work with you know Dukas Danoga and kind of working with those community-based uh, youth programs. That was something you were always kind of, I suppose, um, uh, involved in, was it? Yeah, look, I think, I think. You know, as as professionals, sort of, um, you know, being in the spotlight a little bit, we, we have a bit of a um, an obligation, I feel, to to help use that for good, however small it might be. So, um, you know, look, I tried to I tried to get involved where I could, and um, and and hope I had a, a positive impact um, at some stages, and tried to a little bit over here. It's a bit different over here. We're not quite as, uh, you know, at Connacht, you kind of pretty big fish and a pretty small pond whereas over yeah. here it's a bit different but um but that was great that was what was great about about Galway was we could have a bit more of an impact so now look I think it's important as as footy players that we we try and give a little bit back you know so that was something you were conscious of while you were playing in Connacht yeah look I think it's all it's uh, it's something I've always kind of had at the back of my mind that I that I I want to do you know like I kind of uh, especially things that that I you know that that um that I enjoy or, or things that are close to home for me. I, I've always wanted to get involved with We're trying to do a bit with the, the local animal rescue centre here, um, for example, which is, is something that, that I'm pretty keen on. So just little things like that. It, and, and I suppose the flip side too is it's, um, it's, it's, one of, it's a nice reality check, but it's also a nice step away from the rugby environment. It's nice to, to keep, keep your brain ticking over in other aspects, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. And I suppose there's kind of... Um there's more of a move towards that that maybe rugby gives you a platform and you kind of see more and more players, somebody even like David Pocock, trying to trying to use that for, for the betterment, I guess. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, we live in an age of social media now and, um, you know, although I don't, I don't think I've quite mastered it yet, um, you know, the world's kind of, it's at your fingertips. 
uh, figuratively and literally. So I think there's a great opportunity for it. Jake, that's magic. Thanks a million for taking the call. Hey, not at all, mate. Brilliant stuff from Jake there. One of many New Zealand base players or New Zealand players that we're going to see in Europe, it looks like, just been confirmed that Ryan Craddy is actually going to Japan. But there's been a kind of a, would you call it an exodus from New Zealand that looks like it's going to come in after the World Cup that they're certainly concerned about. So Ryan Craddy is leaving. It's already been confirmed that Owen Franks is going to be with Northampton after the World Cup. Uh, Nene Miller-Sculler is going to Toulon. Ben Smith is already going to Pau. That's been confirmed as well. Kieran Reid uh, looks like he's going. And then there's been a lot of stories about Brody Rutaliak and Bowden Barrett, the offers they have, which I guess, I mean, it's hard to know how you feel about that. These are players in their 30s coming to the end of a World Cup cycle who want to make a bit of money. It'd be really hard to begrudge that. I can also understand why people within New Zealand and that kind of rugby community would be concerned, though. I, uh, I mean, like, I, I'm not quite sure where they've been talking. These are big names leaving. They are yeah. big names leaving, but they've always had big names leave there. They've, I mean, like this always happens that lads will go away, and if they're if they're good enough, if they're still like playing well enough, they'll come back in two years' time or three years' time, play that year before the World Cup, and be available for selection. There, there is also a point to be made that having this kind of mini exodus after World Cup maybe improves your chances of winning the next one because you're these lads step away. Other, la- I mean, somebody's going to come in to fill that gap. That's and a great point, yeah. So, so, uh, the case in point of that is somebody like Scott Penny, who mm. you get a open side injury crisis and steps in before he's even played an under-26 Nations game and plays a senior game for Leinster and does really, really well in the Pro mm. 14. And now it looks like he could be a potential bolter for a World Cup squad. That, mm. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Yep, when Sean O'Brien goes, I'm sure he's going to be... He was maybe licking his lips when he saw Sean O'Brien was, uh, <laughs> yeah. was going to be leaving. Like It's a big opportunity for yeah, him. And yeah. rugby is cyclic anyway. This stuff is going to happen. You're going to get big turnover. I, I mean, I, I can understand that from both perspectives, but I never actually considered how much of a positive it could be until you said that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like I said, there's always someone coming in to fill that gap in New Zealand. It's a little bit scary in, yeah. in ways. Like, do you think that... I, I don't understand why, why New Zealand people would be so worried about it because you've got so much talent there going yeah. through. Um, speaking of New Zealand movements, Ron Rogar is a name that keeps cropping up in the last couple of weeks. He was first linked to coming back to coach France in a upcoming Rugby World Cup. Then yesterday, RMC Sports linked him to the Montpellier job. Mm. There's been a lot of talk about what's going to happen with Vern Cotter there. Um, initially, there was rumours of Sean Edwards and his potential disposal there, but now he's been quite heavily linked to Wasps. Um, I suppose the kind of consequence of all is that, that a lot of us would have maybe hoped that O'Gara would be involved in some way with the Ireland setup when Andy Farrell takes over. Mm. Um, I think it's kind of looking less likely that that might happen now. It's, it's always kind of hard to, to tell about, with Ron O'Gara what his intentions are. Yeah. If it, there's actually there's a good line in that uh, RMC report where it says that Ronan O'Gara is a poker player. I think it's it, it, <laughs> it's the Google Translate version and it says he, he does like the bluff. And he, well, he does. I mean, he sometimes, I mean, like he might give several interviews in the course of like a week he could say different things within, yeah within those like different within within those interviews you, you're never quite sure of his intentions i think it would be i mean like he's you hope and you would got to presume he's going to come back at some stage and he's going to come back like a really good coach maybe he's better off just staying away for this like a little bit longer and building and, the cv and, yeah building the cv like yeah i, I remember like, talking before he's 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 enjoying it over new zealand i mean that's a, it's a huge opportunity like to go over there because very very few outside coaches get to go to New Zealand and learn from them. I mean, like 
they, they feel like Ronan, God, Ronan can actually add something to us here. And I'm sure he's going to learn a lot from over there as well. And even anyone you speak to, I mean, we can look from the outside in and just look at how remarkable it is that they let an outsider come in to the Crusaders and the impact he's had in terms of winning a title and looking like he's going to win more. But anyone you speak to, I spoke to Richie McCaw, we interviewed him around November time and he lavished praise on O'Gara and kind of the work he's been doing and spoke about the possibility that, you know, whether it's Foster or Robinson getting involved in a New Zealand setup, it leaves a kind of a pathway for him to develop there mm-hmm. as well. Um, if he's not, the, I mean, Ireland are going to need somebody to come in to look after their backs if Joe Schmidt leaves. Mm. Um, presumably, Andy Farrell will take kind of the head role and cut, but also look after the defensive side of stuff, the stuff that Les Kiss used to do. Mm. In that scenario, you've also got John Fogarty, who it's been pretty much confirmed that he's going to come in and look after the scrum when Greg Feek leaves. It still leaves an opening there for at least a backs coach. And if it's not Ron Nagar, who is it? Could it be Gervin Dempsey? Could he, be, could he come home? That's an interesting suggestion, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if you look within the game, you've got Felix Jones and Munster. Um, I know Munster's attack isn't necessarily flying, but he's spent a lot of time in Irish camp and Smith certainly seemed to hold him in pretty high regard. Yeah. Nigel Carlin has coached the Ireland under-20s, gone back to Connacht. Connacht, I keep saying this, I think they're the best coach team in Ireland in terms of what they have at their disposal yeah. and the rugby they're playing. Just, you know, it's a level of versatility. It's not this Pat Lamb always relying on going wide and free flowing rugby. You know, there's a bit more variance in it. You've got a guy like Jack Harty who can, you know, muster something from nothing and his kicking game is pretty exceptional. Callum Blade is a really good kicker. I know he's not necessarily first choice, but again, it's going back to that idea. Um so I think Carolyn could probably be in the mix there as well. How how much do you think that improvement has to do with Andy Friends? I'd a lot of it, yeah. yeah. I mean I think you spoke to Robin Copeland at the start of the year and he kind of stressed even just the impact they had of as a change of scene I mean this chalk and cheese approach and what he can't beat positivity a lot of time yeah I mean that that was I think he'd only been in there two months maybe at that stage and I don't know it was like that the previous manager Kieran Keane had been kind of I guess kind of a really kind of overbearing maybe not negative presence but they seem to have a lot more freedom of kind of express themselves there now there's a caveat with all of this as well is that we can't really know what impact these coaches have i mean we can make informed guesses you can look at leinster's phenomenal scrum statistics and you know that john fogarty is a pretty good coach but in terms of you know a lot of this stuff is it's unquantifiable you know you're looking at you're trying to make reads into it and you're hope you think and you're relying on what you're told about the impact somebody like Nigel Carlin has and it's kind of it's nuggets I remember Billy Burns talking about the uh, game when they played Leicester in the Champions Cup and he said outrightly that it was Dwayne Peel who said to him in half time have a look at their backfield they don't leave anyone in the backfield when you get into 22 so there's a chance to chip over mm-hmm. and that's exactly how they scored a try when because so that's I mean that's good coaching in action and that's something that we're told about but we don't always get those insights so it's hard to make a read into just how good they are yeah. necessarily until you look at something black and white like a win-loss ratio we're out of time. PJ, uh, another sterling performance. Oh, yeah. I did. Appearance number two, I think. No Reid would be proud. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> heading towards 250, yeah. yeah. No Reid's also a versatile player in that you can kind of play uh, across the, the back line. So it leads me to believe that you'll probably present next time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could appear on the, on the GA podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, you can hear that GA podcast on Wednesdays in the same Bosley, uh podcast playlist that you're listening to this We'll be back next Monday with plenty more action, but in the meantime, mind yourself. Slick blog, Dermot. <laughs>